0: This morning we are privileged to have a ruling elder from Westminster in Godfrey come and preach God words. Ruling elder Lou Matea, uh recommended very highly from Adrian Doss, we have very much enjoyed him coming and helping us during this difficult time. And uh, ruling elder Matteo, we welcome you this morning. ...also shared abundantly in his comfort, and that that experience has helped them to patiently endure the same sufferings. That, That same affliction that they have, as they transfer that to these Corinthian brothers and sisters, will be for their great benefit. He finishes that out by saying, it's all in Christ, and as such, both affliction and comfort shared by all believers... As belonging to the body. And we know this, right, from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26. That whole theme of where when one part of the body aches, the other part aches. And when one rejoices, the other in verse 26 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And this is going to come full force as we move in to these verses, 8 through 11, and Paul relays to these people what he's been going through. Paul has written 2 Corinthians out of joy. He has met with Titus in Macedonia, and Titus has brought him good news, good news that the letter he previously wrote to them, which Paul calls the harsh letter, they have received And repented and turned. And Paul is joyful at hearing this news. He is delighted. So Paul is writing this letter to this church. And in it, he is also talking about why he has been delayed. So we kind of find ourselves between this opening introduction and this section where he's going to talk about why he's been delayed, what delayed his coming and in the process, we're going to hear what's been going on in Paul's life that has led to part of this delay. So if you would, let's read very quickly 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we have experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength... You, almost, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I thank you already here by this rich worship. Hearing the hearts that are singing, you have set a tone, and your presence is here. We are in a school, and yet our God is with us. Let that sink into us for a moment, that the God of heaven is here. pray that all that we do and say would glorify him and lift up his name in Jesus name amen if i said to you the pit of despair what are you thinking about anybody here fans of the princess bride movies absolutely the Pit of Despair is where our beloved Wesley, after being knocked unconscious, is drugged into this hiding place, if you will, this hidden cove that they call the Pit of Despair, and he's going to be put on a machine that is going to suck the life out of him. And in part of that scene, Prince Humperdinck comes in and enraged over Princess Buttercup's love for Wesley, he grabs the machine and he throws it all the way up and absolutely leaves Wesley for dead, or in that case, mostly dead, right? But I wonder if we know where that term actually comes from. The pit of despair was not something created by the writers of The Princess Bride. It actually comes from comparative psychologist, Harry Harlow, and he coined this phrase in the early 70s. The pit of despair was a a device that Harlow created to hold rhesus monkeys. It was a very small cage, if you will, and it was solid steel, up and down, with only a grate in the bottom for the monkey's waist to fall through. The only way to even see in was through a small one-way glass. The monkey could not see out, but only Harlow and his students could see in. The only interaction that the monkeys ever had was brief and momentary when food or water was placed in the cage. And he put them in this isolation. The top was even curved. A monkey could not climb the walls, as it were, to get to the top. In fact, it was said that they would spend the first day, almost 24 hours, till they were absolutely wore out trying to get to this top of this cage to find some joy of something to hang on to, but that never came for them. After just 30 days of isolation, the monkeys were found to be enormously disturbed. In 30 days, enormously disturbed disturbed as the experiments continued Harlow started to introduce elements of torture and even now as I read through this some 40 something years later it's actually hard to read what they were doing Um, it's just disturbing you see in 1971 Harlow's wife died of cancer And he watched her die being absolutely unable to do anything about it. He had no resources to help his wife. And he watched her waste away. You see, prior to these experiments with these monkeys, he was working with Reese's monkeys. And he was actually working on their maternal attachment, child to mother. But in the depth of his despair over his wife, he turned that research into isolation and depression because of what he was experiencing himself. Even after all that he had done, he felt he had not captured the essence of despair and depression, which he believes was characterized by feelings of loneliness helplessness, and a sense of being trapped, or in his words, sunk in a well of despair. Now, I know it seems weird that I would bring this sermon to you today in a day that's actually a great rejoicing that you are here. And yet, I know that in our lives, we struggle. This confession of sin this morning was just wonderful that we all sin in in thought and word and deed every day and we struggle in this life against our sin. And we need help. We all can fall into depression and places that are dark. I wanted to use a psychological illustration because in this passage... Paul's language is really strong, and it's very articulate. He is is using language that relays not just this outward circumstance that he has going on in his life, these these threatenings that are, are bringing him to feel like he's at death's door, but they also incorporate the thoughts that go on in our minds, the psychological side. And it also brings in the emotional side. And isn't that what happens to us when we begin to wrestle and struggle with life, all of life, it doesn't just affect us on the outside. It affects our emotions. It affects our minds. And it affects our spirits. This all comes and can come And as we see in Paul's life, it can at times waylay us. And in this passage, we're going to see that God wants you and I to be self-reliant. Or not self-reliant, sorry. But to rely on God alone. Not self-reliant, but to rely on God. But, but, But that's where we're always at, right? Oftentimes, even in the small things in life... We're relying on ourselves. And there's just a whole slew of things that we don't even go to God with. We just don't take them to Him in prayer. But we need to rely on God because He is the God who has resurrection power. So how does this passage show us that? How does God bring Paul to the end of himself? How does God bring Paul to the end of himself? And he does that, I would tell you, through this affliction that shows itself in two ways, through difficulty and despair. Through difficulty and despair. Paul opens up in verse 8 and he says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. First, I would say note the tone. He calls these Fellow believers, Adelphoi, this term is brothers and sisters. These are people who share the common bond of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are dear to Paul. And it's as if he's beginning to draw them close, because this is still fresh to Paul. This isn't very far removed from him. And so he calls these dear brothers and sisters to come in close, And the implication is that they actually know something has happened in Paul's life, but they don't know what it is. The details aren't there, but they they realize something has transpired. And he's bringing them close. He wants to give them these details. And I would tell you that the word affliction shows up in 2 Corinthians no less than eight times. It is a theme that runs throughout, and it's important for us to note that. The afflictions Paul is suffering are those difficulties and sufferings in his life that come from outward circumstances. And in that opening line, when he uses the word afflictions, it, it's, it's often used with, with two other metaphors, if you will. It's, it's used in crushing grapes, it's used as a winemaker would sit and stomp on grapes, and as you stomp on them, Grapes are round, and as you push them down, some are going to spring out to the side, and so you continue to stomp those grapes, and more do that, and more do that, and you continue to stomp and stomp and stomp until you've turned it into juice and pulverized every grape. It's also used in, in making Flour. Two great stones as, as the wheat comes down and begin to grind together. And they come out in the center of those grinding stones. And there are furrows in those. And as the wheat comes in and it begins to grind, these two heavy stones begin to crush the wheat. And as it does, the wheat moves out further and further. And it continues to be crushed. And it continues to be crushed. And it continues to be crushed until it gets to the outside edge of the stone and falls off. That's the strength of the term. Paul is using here for his afflictions, these difficulties that are coming into his life. Now, we don't know them specifically. The text does not tell us any great detail about what these are. But we can kind of take step back a minute and look at Paul's life and maybe get some idea. Paul has written 2 Corinthians between leaving Ephesus and arriving in Corinth. While he is away, he has heard the good news from Titus, and he is writing this letter. If you can, turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Keep your finger in our Second Corinthians text, but Acts chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And Luke writes, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, Corinth. Now, what has just transpired? What is the uproar Paul are, is referring to? And I would tell you, if you look back just before that in the text, you'll see that there was a silversmith named Demetrius who was pretty riled up that his income had been radically cut off, radically reduced. Not just his, but all the craftsmen that made shrines or idols for idol worship In specific, Artemis of the Ephesians. And it would go even further than that. There were meat sellers in the market for sacrifices. I mean, just everybody's wages have been reduced because people are actually turning to the way. They're turning to Christ. They're turning to Christianity. And they are unhappy that their pocketbooks are empty and the way they live has actually been interrupted because of Paul's preaching. They are so angry in this passage that the language in it is talking about a riot. This this riotous mob gathers, and they're marching through the streets, and they even drag a couple of Paul's fellows into the theater, and it's in such chaos, there are people all around who don't even know why they're there. And for two hours they scream, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it has become so tumultuous, after they drag these people in, Paul feels the urgency to run in and address the crowd. And his disciples who are with him will not let him because it is far, far too dangerous. Far too dangerous. And they will not let him go in and address the people if that's not enough for us to, to kind of get an idea of what's going on in Paul's life, if you're in your 2 Corinthians area, turn to chapter 11, and let's read together verses 23 through 29. Chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, where, where Paul starts to give a summary of his sufferings. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Am I talking like a madman? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and and a day I was adrift at sea. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And if you look just a few verses over from there in chapter 12, we read about Paul's thorn in the flesh, which he received 14 years earlier. Paul gets affliction. And the reason I bring all that up is because he's getting ready to tell us how these difficulties have brought him to despair. Really? After all of that? I would have been waylaid long before that. Long before that. But Paul is going to find himself in despair. A very real place that any of us, and even these young ones, can find themselves in this day and age. I have talked to countless moms and dads whose children are in harm's way because mentally they cannot keep up with all that is going on in their schools and in our culture. That comes home and that affects you and me as moms and dads. And we struggle against that. And we, we hear of little ones wanting to end their lives because despair has set in. And this isn't only for our little ones. This can affect any of us at any stage in life. And if we think it can't, we are not being real. It can happen to anyone paul 's words for us today are an encourage an encouragement and I hope you hear it in the words of this sermon. There is a great encouragement for all of us, whatever the affliction Paul says he is utterly burdened and that that word that he uses there, I want you to picture it's it 's like the giant dump trucks that you see on the highway that are going to and from a construction zone and they just hold tons and tons of dirt or rock or whatever it is and imagine if you will that this truck is sitting there and it's and the the bulldozer just continues to load it and to load it and to load it until all of a sudden all the airbags explode and it drops down on its axles and now it is absolutely even unable to function or move. Or perhaps a ship. And you've seen these large container ships, right? They've been all over the news for the last year that they're stuck in the harbors. And it's like a ship being out in the harbor. And they continue to load these these containers on. And they load it and they load it and they load it. Till the boat is all the way down to the water line. And if they put on one more container, it's going to take on water and begin to sink. That's... The word Paul is using here for his afflictions. They are utterly burdened. But on top of that, he says it is beyond our strength. It's not just beyond their strength in this language. It's excessively beyond his strength. Paul, who has done all this suffering, says that this hasn't just taken him to the end of his strength and not beyond it. But excessively beyond his strength. Paul is at the end of himself. It's a burden that is so great that it makes one ready to fall. It has the idea behind it that it affects not just the external, but the psychological and the emotional too. He's strapped. Of every resource that in and of himself he has. That wasn't his only problem. Paul says we despaired of life itself. These tremendous difficulties have now led him to despair. Merriam-Webster defines despair this way. Very simply... To be without hope. And I think that really sums it up. To be without hope. The American Psychological Association says it like this. Despair is the emotion or feeling of hopelessness. That is, that things are profoundly wrong and will never change. They'll never change change in fact there is a whole new field of study that's been taking place over the last well the best of my reading five years ago it could be longer than that called death of despair psychologists and counselors they're all looking at this information because in certain areas of the culture the death rate due to despair is up over 300 percent and guys If you're from your middle 20s into your 40s, you are the target group of that study. You wonder why there's not enough people to get all the jobs? Because men in that age group are taking their lives day in and day out because they're in utter despair. The Greek word here says to be without a way out, to be at a complete loss. To be at a loss psychologically. Filled with doubt and embarrassment. Isn't that interesting? That one of the nuances of this word is embarrassment. I have a friend who I spoke with who struggles with bipolar, bipolar disorder. And he said, oh, I get that, man. I get it. And I said, why? And he goes, because when you struggle like this, it seems like you feel like you're telling the world I can't handle it. And it's absolutely embarrassing. Absolutely embarrassing. That kind of thing breaks my heart. But Paul finds himself, him and his comrades, find themselves in despair. They are, as it were, at the end of their rope. And I want to illustrate that for us, maybe something that's a little more tangible for us, maybe something we can relate to a little bit better. Say it's nighttime in your home. It's time for everybody to go to bed. Everybody's got their jammies on. Everybody goes upstairs. You close down the out downstairs, you go upstairs, everybody goes into their bedroom. It's time for bed. And after everybody's been in their bedroom for about 10 minutes and we're winding down, the smoke detector goes off in the hallway right outside at the top of the stairs. You open the door to go out to see if it's a false alarm and there's smoke filling the staircase already. And you wonder in your mind, why didn't the other smoke alarms go off? The ones that are downstairs, why didn't they go off first? And you're starting in your mind to say, oh my goodness, did I actually change those batteries? Was I too lazy? Oh, what peril have I put my family in right now, right? And all of a sudden, the mind engages in racing. But it's going back and forth between now, what do I do? I have to save my family. What do I do? So you start, the kids and everybody start coming out of their rooms. And you look in the first room and you look out the window and there's fire. There's no way you can go out that room. So you grab people out of that room. You go to the next room and you look in that room and you go look out the window and there's fire. And you can't go out that window either. So you go into the last bedroom and you have in your hand a rope. A temporary fire extinguisher. You can buy these all over the place. And you're thankful that you bought it now. And you get into the last room and you look out the window and there's no fire. There's some smoke down there, but there's no fire. And you're like, ah, we can get out here. So you put the rope in the window and you throw it out. And it's hanging down the side of the house. And you look at your kids, you look at your family and you say, I'm going to go down first so that I can get everybody off the rope and make sure they get to safety And as you're having this 10-second conversation, you climb out onto the rope and you begin to scale the side of the house. But halfway down, in the mere moments it took you to talk to your family, the rope caught fire. And it's only half as long as it needs to be. And you have come down and you're hanging on. And you're trying to figure out what to do. You have no more resources. You're hanging onto the rope. And it's a 12 foot drop to your death. Or you burn alive. That's where Paul. That's where Paul finds himself in this passage. It's, 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 it's unbelievable, right? I mean, it, it's hard to believe that. This guy who gave us the great doctrines of our faith, election, sanctification, the perseverance of the saints. He's in this situation and there's nothing left and he's holding on for all he has. And he's going to come to the end of himself where there's no strength, there's no mind, there's nothing left for him to hold on to. Despair doesn't differentiate by age. Suicides are rampant all across the age groups. Like Paul, we often try to solve our problems in our own strength. When the world seems to press in all around us and it seems like a never-ending barrage of financial woes, job loss, problems with the kids, a house fire, loved ones dying... Illnesses in our wife or our children that consumes every moment of every day. And we almost feel like our life is over. Our inability to see God's will in a particular area of life. His leading. Maybe it's loneliness, depression, anxiety, or seemingly endless panic attacks that riddle your life. We feel despair rushing in. But we regather ourselves and we go out and we buy another self-help book or something from the most popular Christian author, or we self-medicate through pornography, drugs, alcohol, or a new love interest. We will fill that void, we will look for an answer and anything we can grasp at. It happens. It happens. By doing these things, we continue in our self-reliance. And again, we find ourselves in great difficulty, frustrated that we are having conversations with God in our head that seem to border on apostasy. And I can tell you, I have counseled with some people who say things like this, really God, don't you know I'm at the end of my rope? If you're sovereign and overall, this is your doing. I'm done. I'm done. Can't you see that I'm done? Help me. Or are you just a moral monster? I've heard people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ say, these kinds of things because they're at the end of themselves. But praise God, He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave Paul there. Earlier I stated that God will bring us to the end of ourselves. And we see that in the life of Paul, especially in verses 8 and the first part of 9. But I also said that we must trust in the God who has resurrection power And that is you and me. We serve a God today that you guys have been wonderfully glorifying and praising who has resurrection power. He lifts us from the dead as it were. And each one of you who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ know this. Because he came in in accordance with Philippians, or Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, you were dead in your sin and your trespasses. And the word he uses there is not thanatos, which is a word for dead. He uses the word necrosis, rotting tissue. You were beyond dead, and you needed resurrection life. And God came, and he did that for you. And you know what that's like. This is the God we can place our trust in. And Paul is going to walk us there and praise his name. Praise the name of Jesus. He doesn't leave us there. And Paul is now going to proclaim his trust, his hope, and his help of the Lord. Where he was taken to where he was through despair and through difficulty. And now in front of him is trust Hope and help. Look at verse nine, b, if you would, and there's that wonderful word of co- contrast. But, right to psych like Ephesians two, but God, right? But he says the whole reason all that happened, that affliction that we were in, was that that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I hope you believe that this morning. We serve a God who is the only God who has resurrection power for those of us who have placed our trust in Him. And if today you find yourself on that road to despair, there is one whom you can trust in who saved your very soul and will resurrect you again. Paul, who is now balanced on the edge, lets go of himself because there is nothing else to hold on to. It's much like hanging on to that rope outside the window and you're halfway down and you realize there's no more rope and you're hanging on. The heat is getting to you and your hands are sweating above you Your family is frantic, yelling down at you, trying to help you, and below you is a fall to your death. You either have the choice of falling to your death or death by fire, and as much as you hold on and you cling to the rope, gravity is against you, and the sweat on your hands you begin to slide down the rope. You're at the end of yourself, and you let go. And you close your eyes, preparing to hit the ground. And Paul says, Jesus saved me! He didn't hit the ground. He didn't fall and die. Paul was saved by the hand of his God. He wanted Paul to know that as great as you are, Paul, You need to trust in me. Your self-sufficiency is nothing in light of who he is. And we can often, often find ourselves in a place where we're calling all the shots. And we're trying to navigate all the hardships of life. But God intervenes, praise his name. He rescues Paul. Paul has a renewed trust, a deep and abiding trust because God has saved him from impending death. It, It was a death sentence to him. And he goes on to say in verse 10, by the end of verse 10, Paul has said, He delivered us from such a deadly peril that He will deliver us on Him. We have set our hope that He will deliver us again. To give you an idea where Paul's hope has now gone to, by the end of verse 10... He says God delivered them from death in the past. God is delivering them from death in the present. And God will deliver them from death in the future. Paul's hope is absolutely renewed. He has come to the end of himself and he has put all of his faith and all of his trust back in his Lord and his Savior. The same place He wants us to be. Remember in that opening, he says, All these things, this affliction that we suffer, it's it's for your benefit. He's relaying that benefit to them right now. I have suffered, and this is to your benefit. These believers in Corinth, he now calls them to come alongside of him, he calls them to come alongside in prayer. Because Paul realizes that at the end of himself, his Lord and his Savior is there, but he believes in the power of prayer. And not just prayer, but intercessory prayer. Paul is now calling these beloved, these Adelphoi, to come alongside of him and help him through intercessory prayers. He needs their prayers now and in the future So he calls on them by saying, you all, many, pray for us, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Perhaps said more simply, Paul is saying, we need your help by prayer, so that there will be abundant thanksgivings for the great blessings that come from those many prayers. Pray for us that you may give thanks to God when he provides through your prayers. What a wonderful blessing. At Westminster, we have a prayer chain. You may have one here as well. One day I was approached by a congregation member who asked me to pray for their daughter. Their daughter had... an accident that changed her life forever at the age of 16. And in some degree, blamed God for that accident and wanted nothing to do with God anymore. And her mom said, she's kind of come to the end of the occult that she was really steeped in. And she said, she came to me and she said, she said, Mom, pray for me that I will find the truth. Not Jesus. But the truth, little did she know they are one and the same. So I began to pray. and She began to tell other people in the church and other people in the church. And I began to tell people, pray, please pray for this. Please pray for this. And we began to pray. And after a short time, God came and rescued her and gave her renewed life in Christ Jesus, and I can't even begin to tell you how we rejoiced. The whole congregation, when we heard that she had denounced her old ways, realized that she was a sinner in need of grace, and came to trust in God, we rejoiced. That's what Paul's talking about here. Come alongside, brothers. Enjoy and be drenched in God's goodness by also rejoicing in the answer of his prayer. Come and join us in this. Paul informed these Corinthians believers of his exceeding affliction, his experience with him and his fellow workers in Asia. He witnessed to them that God used deep despair to bring them to a place that was without exception beyond all their resources, so far beyond their resources that they were convinced they were going to die, that they had been given a death sentence, Paul was convinced that this is where God was going to take him out of this life. But in the face of impending death, God rescued them, giving them a deep and abiding trust and a renewed hope in the resurrection power of God. It was not just trusting for the moment, but a life-changing, implicit trust for the rest of their lives. Which is why I wanted that Second Corinthians passage read prior to this, right? It is because of this type of instance in Paul's life, these circumstances, that he can say in chapter 4, verse 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Paul knows he no longer needs to despair. His trust, trust now is firmly anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I live in a world that is utterly broken. And it is broken in so many ways. So many ways. We live in a world that's filled with hatred, fear, anger, anxiety, social unrest, cancel culture, corrupt politicians, not to mention the very things that are going on in the lives of each and every one of you that impact you every single day. When confronted with all these, the trials of life, we can become overwhelmed as we try as we might, to rely on ourselves to grapple with it all to the point that it takes us to despair. We must realize that as we are so utterly broken, we have limited resources in and of ourselves. Absolutely limited. Although we think we can cope... And overcome the things of this world with our human resources. We must come to the reality that we cannot. For those of us who confess Jesus as Lord, you. His precious ones. His set apart ones. As we come to that place. We must trust in God. Who gives us a gift. So oddly wrapped. We don't think about despair being a gift. And yet God has uniquely wrapped this thing to bring us to the end of ourselves because He is so committed to us to trust in Him that He will let us get to a point of despair that we do away with ourselves and rely solely on On him, he will take us to a greater understanding of who he is. A God of resurrection power. And in turn, like Paul, we gain a deeper and abiding trust in our Lord and our Savior. Supported by the prayers of the saints for the rejoicing of us all. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that a wannabe preacher like me can sit up here and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to apply, to apply, to apply, and to apply his grace to the lives of his lambs. Thank you. So I pray for these, your children, that we would place all of our hope and our trust in a Lord, our God who has resurrection power. Amen.